Okay. Um, I just sent, but it's on. It's one of those half an hour before it uh, actually uh, comes to you. Um, I just sent you all a scan of the Critique of Pure Reason. Uh, don't freak. You don't have to read it all. Um, but it's what I found on the web, and I wasn't just going to start trying to dig through in a, uh, a PDF file and give you the pages. So, but I want to um, explain the reading, which is their page numbers with the um, email you're going to get. And I think this is obvious, but just to be sure, because if this course has taught you anything, it's that counting isn't straightforward. Um, the assignment is based on the printed pages. So the printed pages naturally, although they are in a one-to-one -one correspondence with the PDF pages, they won't be the same. Um, so I gave you both the numbers to look at on the printed pages, to wit, pages 43 through 60, and then pages 125 through 130. Um, but I also gave you what I think will be the right page numbers, even if you don't use Adobe to read it. Um, and those correct page numbers are um, the assignment plus 24. Um, so that is to say, whatever, 67 through 84, and then 149 through 154. All that's in the email. I just don't want you to be confused. Um, so you should try to read that for Monday. Um, it's a total of, what, uh, a little less than 25 pages. Um, on the other hand, it's Kant. Um, so if you can't read it for Monday, um, at least read some of it. Um, your smiles get more indulgent as we approach Thanksgiving. It's nice. Um, at least read some of it. And um, we'll be talking about Kant both on Monday and on the Monday after Thanksgiving. How many people have read any Kant in their logs? Um, okay, so you know what you're getting into, sort of. Um, Kant looks really hard at first, and then he, he actually turns out to be the most straightforward and easiest and clearest and most lucid, deceptively lucid, of the German um, tradition that he founds. Um, when you read Kant, and if you're feeling like this is kind of hard, you can always say to yourself, but at least it's not Hegel. Um, because how many people have tried Hegel? Uh, what did you think, you guys? No, you just thought, nah. You thought, he's a master, I'm a slave, that's that. Okay. Um, one of the most famous uh, chapters in Hegel is the chapter on the master-slave dialectic, which is game theory is really figuring out how that works. Um, but we did it the easy way, uh, through Prisoner's Dilemma, which really is the master-slave dialectic. If anyone ever asks you at a party, like, to what German idealist would you most compare Prisoner's Dilemma? I think you should just say the master-slave dialectic chapter in the phenomenology of spirit. Um, do you mean Jeopardy? No, I, I really don't think this would ever be on Jeopardy. This would never be on Jeopardy. This is not the kind of question they ask on Jeopardy. Yes, okay, they ask answers. Nicely said, they ask answers. Um, you would think. You would think. Um, yeah, they don't. And I think if you try it, they throw you off. 
Um, like, what is a baffling but 25-word long Final Jeopardy answer? You could ask that if you had no idea what the 25 words that you were supposed to solve meant. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Um, so has everyone finished Neuromancer? <laughs> uh, does that mean no? That sort of means no. Um, it all turns out to be a bad dream. Um, spoiler, but yeah, it altered. There's a coin and it's kind of spinning. And no. Um, has everyone gotten at least halfway through? No? Are you not liking it or are you just too busy? I, I'm very busy. Okay, you're very busy with courses that matter. Okay. Um, other people? Excuses? I read the whole thing. All right, that's not an excuse. That's not a, I'm not looking at Good. All right. Okay. Luca, what did you say? I read the whole thing. Okay, good. Um, other excuses? I just want to know whether we should, um, I don't know, what we can say about it. It's totally great. Who is it? Who is it? Who was loving it so much, Carol? Isn't it totally great? Can you sell it to these good people again? I know you did once, but they still have you. You, you failed for some of them. I'm really enjoying it, but I'm not quite through. I mean, if you don't like the Matrix, like the movie, which that's weird if you don't, but I guess it's like if you don't like it, just get out of the like, Wait, are you talking about Neuromancer or the Matrix now? Or both? I think we've been talking about the Matrix. The characters are My mom argues that the characters in the Matrix aren't actually humans because they humans shouldn't be able to download and upload information. Well, yeah, they're, they're cyborgs, as some people will call them. Um, well, there are characters in Neuromancer. That's one of the great things about it. Um, I think Case and Molly are pretty good. Yeah, which means that Keanu Reeves could not play him, because you would need more subtlety than Keanu Reeves is is, is capable of. Right, exactly. Yeah, he'd be good for Armitage. Um, yeah, except he would say "whoa" and spoil the illusion. Um, all right. Well, look. Let's. What do you guys think? Those of you who are at least halfway through. Um, we started talking about this. I actually want to pick up on what we finished with on uh, Monday, which is the irrationality of the square root of 2. Do you all remember how to do it now? Yes. Did you go home and show your roommates and freak them out? No? Do what? Do this? You were... <laughs> no. You weren't here Monday, I don't think. Were you? And then he basically did the same thing, but like sort of came to a different result. Not the odd equals the things. He just said there, instead of the end, he put therefore the sides cannot be rational. Wait, why? Uh, instead of like his end result being even equals odd, he came up with like some formula that he sort of like declared that A and B cannot be rational. 
Yeah, he might have done it by um, the method of infinite descent. Yeah, the well-ordered principle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's actually the way Euclid did it, but the odd and even one, I think, is intuitively more... more um, trippy? Trippy, yeah. <laughs> intuitively more trippy. Um, yeah, I mean, infinite descent is actually a way that a lot of people learned it in high school. Did Have people learned this in high school? Did you learn the irrationality of the square root of two? No? You did? Learned it recently in discrete structures. But you, so this wasn't something proved to you in high school? They just said it's irrational? Leave us alone. It's irrational. I think they said that some numbers you can tell if they're irrational if it, if it just becomes, if you're doing long division and it just becomes a pattern. But there are irrational numbers that aren't necessarily a pattern. I guess they will be if you wait long enough, though. But if there's a pattern when you're no, if there's a pattern, it's not irrational. Um, but the problem is knowing whether it's a pattern or not. You know, anyone know the decimal expansion of one seventh offhand? No? Well, it's, you know, 22 sevenths, actually, I think it was the state of Indiana passed a law in the 19th century, because this is a different kind of law from the constancy of the speed of light. This is true, what I'm telling you now. They passed a law in the 19th century that pi henceforth would equal 22 sevenths. Um, sorry? No, even though the state of Indiana claimed it was, it isn't. Um, but that's what the Egyptians used as an approximation for pi. So if you're an engineer and you need um, a, a first decent approximation of the ratio of radius to circumference of a circle, 22 sevenths is a pretty good simple one. Um, they're better, not quite so simple ones. Um, but 22 sevenths is 3 and a seventh, and the 1 seventh part of that is 0.14 2857142857142857 etc so it repeats after six digits 1428571142857 etc that's where it starts repeating so if you get a repeating decimal that's a rational number does everyone know that a repeating decimal is a rational number um, that's why 0.33333 going on forever one third that's a rational number. So any repeating decimal is repeating because it's cycling, because you're doing an arithmetical operation between two integers. So all repeating decimals are rational. Um, one problem, though, might be that you might not know whether you're dealing with a repeating decimal. That is, someone there is a number. 3.142857142857142857142857 which after 100 million of those 142857s you would get 142856142857142857 etc i mean that's a number any set yeah maybe we should go this way for a little while any set of yeah because you're reading so little over Thanksgiving and for Monday just a little bit of Kant which will take you hours and Neuromancer which won't so let's go this way a little while um, you can any set of decimals point and then a bunch of numbers um, you can have any bunch of numbers that you want and simply by inspection you won't be able to tell this is a little like the um, fifth postulate, parallel line, if you see a bunch of numbers following a decimal point, um, you won't be able to tell just by looking 
whether it's a rational or an irrational number. That's why, for example, you were taught, I should teach myself to bring chalk. Huh. There's so little we can prove without chalk. It's terrible. So do we have to take chalk as that it's in our system? Yeah. Wait, here's some chalk. So you know that the way you write a third is with a bar over the three, right? And the reason for the bar is to tell you that it's threes forever and that it isn't, for example, so if you've done pi, if you've ever seen how pi is written, it's three point. This is where it um, differs from 22 sevens, by the way. It's in the third significant digit in decimals. 3.1415, OK, well, the question is, et cetera, what does et cetera mean there? You could put dot, 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 but we don't know what goes in those dot, dot, dots. We would have to figure them out digit by digit. Whereas if you say that 22 sevens is 3.1428571428571, this set of dots means something different from this set of dots. This set of dots means digits that go on, but we don't know what they are until we actually figure them out. This set of dots means digits that follow a pattern that's already been established. Okay, do people see that? So if you say that one-third is 0.333 dot dot dot, those dots stand for threes forever, right? You all learned that at some point. But it's important to see that this set of dots means something different from this set of dots. You're often not told that, you're just told by the time you get this far out, it really doesn't matter anymore. Um, it goes on forever. It's never going to um, terminate, but it really doesn't matter anymore. Did people know what, um, what number 0.999, nines all the way down, equals? Can you prove it? Yes? Prove it. Yeah. Yeah, so how do you prove that equals 1? You can make an inductive argument about the, about the summation. Right, yeah. And then how that series over 0.9 and then that series. It always gets close between 1. You can also look for, or you could ask, if it's not the same as 1, then then what is it? Then what is it's infinitesimally close to one, but it's not one. What's the number between it and one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you just had another nine. What you can do is multiply it by ten. And so if you multiply it by ten, you get nine point nine nine nine, etc. So this is a number, we'll call it n. This is ten n. n equals point nine nine nine, etc. Ten n equals 9.999, etc. Now we subtract 9. all these 9s minus all these 9s, and what's the answer? Nine. It's just plain old 9. And we subtract 10n minus n equals 9n. 9N. 
9 n equals 9, we, we divide both sides by 9. And what do we get? n equals 1. So, one, so if n equals 1, we say n equals 1 equals all those point nine 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 nines. So, sorry? Yes! Wait, no, that's not true. What if n was like point three? What? What if n was like 0.3? would be true. Then we're not, then, what are you going to say? Three point, you're going to multiply um, 10 times 0.3 and you get 3.3333. Three, 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 three. And then minus point three. Yeah, so. And then I'll have 3n three equals 3, and my n would be 1 again. But no, it was point 0.3. Oh. Yeah, wait a second, I've got to think about that. Yeah, so 10n equals 3. Yeah. 3, 3, 3. Yeah. yeah, you but get 10n so e equals 3.33. 3. 3. 3. 3. 3. 3. 3. 3. And you get 10n. Okay, 10n. All right, let's try it. <coughs> you won't get n equals 1. Let's, let's try get, it. Um, Maybe all of math is wrong. Okay, n equals 0 0.333 dot dot dot. 10n equals 3.333 dot dot dot. 9n equals 3. Um, yeah, n equals 3. And then I get, and then I get n equals 1 third. Oh, right. oh, thank God. I stand corrected. Okay, good. So n equals a third. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but with that kind of uh, algebraic solution, what I've always heard is that that's kind of kind of not true because you're doing algebra to you're doing algebra on something that you really shouldn't be doing algebra on. Just like how okay, so <laughs> if algebra doesn't work, then right. we're in trouble. Well, no, I mean you're doing algebra on uh, something that is going on infinitely long. Yeah. So that's like saying, like, oh, well, you know, I'll just uh, multiply infinity by 2. Well, you can't really do that, because infinity isn't just like a number you can plug into the calculator. Okay, so are you saying that... <coughs> how would you do any kind of infinite summation, then, if you're not using algebra? I'm just saying you have to approach it differently. You can't just be like, well, it's basically the same thing. It's, a num well, it's different. It's, it's in a different situation. Now, what you would have to do, and we can easily do this, what you would have to do is show that each step of the subtraction is legit. So what you would have to do is show that there is, that it's okay um, to take this point three, which is actually ten times this one, right? So what you've done is you've multiplied this number by 10, 0.333 dot dot dot, you multiplied it by 10, and the result is that this 0.3 multiplied by 10 turned into that, this 0.3 multiplied by 10 turned into that, this 0.3 multiplied by 10 turned into that, etc. Um, and then you're subtracting. So you couldn't do that unless you could show that there was a one-to-one -one correspondence that coordinated these numbers, like this. Mm -hmm. So, the standard name for this one-to-one -one correspondence is the Hilbert Hotel. Just so you know. I think you could look it up in Wikipedia. Hilbert Hotel. Oh, I think I know the... So the Hilbert Hotel is yeah. that 
There's a there's you go to a hotel which has an infinite number of rooms, but there's an infinite number of guests in it, and you want a room, so you go to the desk clerk, and she says, "Well, we're full up, but I think I can find you a room." And the desk clerk then just gets on an intercom and tells everyone that they have to go to the next room, and then the first room opens up. Um, so basically, what you're showing is that there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between a set and the set shifted over by one. The set of natural numbers and the set of natural numbers shifted over by one. Therefore, a one-to-one -one correspondence between the numbers from one to infinity and the numbers from two to infinity plus one. But infinity plus one is the same thing as infinity. So that's, a, that's just another version of saying that the number of even numbers and the number of whole numbers is the same number because you can set up a one-to-one -one correspondence. The one-to-one -one correspondence doesn't have to be the way we did it, which you guys seem to accept, right? That they're the same number of even numbers as whole numbers. Does anyone doubt that anymore? All right, good. Um, so what we did to show that the evens and the wholes were the same was we set up a one-to-one -one correspondence where every even number you could make, um, put into correspondence with a whole number half its size. And every whole number you could put into correspondence with an even number twice its size. Remember that? That's how we did one-to-one -one correspondence? No? You sort of remember, but you sort of don't believe it? Is, you sort of remember, but you sort of don't believe it. No, I, I do remember and I do believe it. Okay. Remember that the most basic concept was one-to-one -one correspondence. You can't count without using one-to-one -one correspondence. So to talk about a greater number or a lesser number, to say that 10 is greater than 5, that's an insight you can only have if you use a more elementary concept, namely that of one-to-one -one correspondence. So one-to-one -one correspondence is the most basic concept there is for counting. And you can't say one-to-one -one correspondence doesn't work because I've counted and I know that 10 is greater than 5 and 100 is greater than 50, so two infinities would be greater than one infinity. You can't do that because the only reason you know that 10 is greater than 5 is that you know one-to-one -one correspondence. And the only way you know that 100 is greater than 50 is that you know one-to-one -one correspondence. So if one-to-one -one correspondence shows that the even numbers can be coordinated with the whole numbers, that's more basic, truer, closer to logical self-evidence than your intuitive idea, but you can't get infinity in your mind. You can know what it's like to have 50 cents and to have 25 cents, but you can't know what it's like to have an infinite number of anythings. So the only, th the only tool you have is the tool that lets you see why 50 cents is greater than 25 cents, that lets you count up to 50 or up to 25. That tool is one-to-one -one correspondence. So that tool is more basic than the actual number of anything. You can only talk about the actual number of things if you have one-to-one -one correspondence. So when we go to infinite sets where we can't talk about the actual number of things, 
remember Pascal saying, what's the biggest number, even or odd? We just can't talk about it. What we can talk about is what equality in size means. And you don't even have to call it equality in size. What we should say instead is, let's talk about one-to-one -one correspondence. That's the most basic idea there is. Now, I'm going to give you a new name for something that one-to-one -one correspondence. Um, it's just a technical term. It's vocabulary. It's technical. I'm giving you a new term in your lives. If two sets can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence, we'll say that they have equal number of elements. Okay, so here's a new term for you, equal number of elements. Don't think you know what that means unless you know what one-to-one -one correspondence means. Everyone knows what one-to-one -one correspondence means. Now what I'm going to do is give you some terminology where instead of saying one-to-one -one correspondence, you can say equal. You're allowed to do that, equal, instead of one-to-one -one correspondence. Just say equal. So don't, now intuitively, we all know what equal means, but the reason we know what it means is that before we knew we were learning this, we learned that when two things were in one-to-one -one correspondence, adults said they were equal. That's what we learned, that when two things were in one-to-one -one correspondence, adults said they were equal. So as you learn language, you know the way literate people cannot look at letters or words in their own language and not read them. If I write Walker magically on the board, just like that, if you look at that and you're literate in English, you can't look at that as a shape. You have to read it. You have no choice. In fact, it's an interesting, it seems to be an interesting fact that literate people cannot hear words in their own language without having some sense of how they're spelled. You can't hear language, your own language, although if you are, have ever immersed yourself in a language with a different alphabet um, where you haven't learned to read that language at all, a lot of people from bilingual homes have had that experience. That is, um, do, are any of you from Russian or Hebrew or Japanese or Chinese background? What are you, Abby? Russian. Russian. So can you read Russian? Very poorly. Very poorly. But you could probably understand it at a time when you were reading English, but not able to read any Cyrillic. Okay. Um, I had I had that experience. I had that experience. And so what that means is I can't spell at all, and it's really hard for me to sound out, even in Roman letters, a language that I can understand pretty well. And it doesn't come to me as spelled when I hear it. Some letters do when they're very like English letters, but um, it doesn't come to me as spelled. If I say English, it's very hard for you not to, not to hear a capital E-N-G. You somehow hear it. You're hearing letters, not only sounds, but letters. George Bernard Shaw, very famously, he thought that English spelling was ridiculous because there were so many different ways to spell things. So he said, here's the thing about English, that this word, anyone know what that spells according to Shaw? 
All right, fish. Why fish? The GH as in enough? The O as in? Also, how would you know it was fish? You just knew. The O as in women? Yep. And the TI as in? Anything with the nation? Yeah, nation. Yeah. I don't get it. So the TI in nation is pronounced sh, right? The O in women is it. Yeah. So in fact, the fact that you didn't get it is, is, uh, is exactly the, my point, which is most people, if asked, how do you pronounce, what's the best letter to put for the pronunciation of the O in women? Most people's immediate reaction will be O, most literate English speakers. And then if you think for a second, you'll say, wait, no, it's not O, it's I. That's really I. That's weird. Or if you're a radical feminist, you'll say, well, obviously it's Y. But the point is, it used to be the case that the feminist spelling of women was W-Y-M-Y-N. And you can see why. You can see two Ys, in fact. Because it doesn't include the word man. No, it's not. It's really not a Y chromosome joke. Um, but it could be. But it, 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 it would be a joke that would fall very flat. Um, if you spell it with two X's but pronounced it as though it were two Y's, that would be good. So W, X, M, X, N. What? They probably do that in French. Okay, so... So the point is, though, if you think, if someone says women, and some part of your brain is going to be hearing an O and an E. E Hearing an O and an E, even though the part of your brain that's purely auditory is hearing an I and an I, women, um, or an I and a schwa. Um, But when you are literate in a language, it's extremely difficult not to know the spelling or the rough spelling of words that people are saying. Your brain is kind of unspooling like a CNN crawl of the spelling of words that people are saying. How many people didn't hear the two L's in spelling when I said spelling? I mean, you all kind of heard it. You know that the word spell has two L's. And you hear it if someone says spell. Go on, set a spell. Right? Can you deny it? Can you spell spell when I say spell with one L? Or if I say the word two? How am I spelling that? Each one of us is thinking differently. Yeah, but you are thinking something. Yeah. What was interesting was in my head when you said spell with two L's. Uh huh. At the moment that you said two L's, my head went back and deleted an L from my mental representation of the word that you had just said. Like the phrase reparsed. Yes. At the moment that you said that. All right. Yeah. So you can do that if you do it. I like the Turing machine back and forth of that. Um, you can do that um, if you think about it. Okay. The reason I'm saying this is to say that one to one correspondence is the same thing. Um, we can't remember once we learn at all anything about counting. We can't remember what it was like 
to interact with the world before we were saying one, two, three, four, five, and just saying, oh, same number of things. We just can't remember. And that's why we think counting is more basic than one-to-one -one correspondence when we don't think about it. That's why we say if someone gives you, you know, if you're in third grade and you get a math problem, which is um, say whether these two sets are in one-to-one -one correspondence, the way most third graders will do it is they'll count the number in one set and then they'll count the number in another set. And if the numbers are the same, they'll say, yes, one-to-one -one correspondence. But that's the long way round because what they've actually done is put the first set into one-to-one -one correspondence with a certain number of integers and then they put the second set into one-to-one -one correspondence with a certain number of integers, and then they've compared the two results of those two acts of putting things into one-to-one -one correspondence. And that's the harder way of doing things. Easier for us because we're practiced, but harder in reality, and harder to program, I should say, which is one way to um, talk about um, to get an ordering of simplicity to complexity is how hard is it to program. Um, do you know about this, Kolmogorov complexity? Um, I've heard of it, but I'm not totally familiar with it. Yeah, it turns out to the Library of Babel has something to say about that also. I mean, something good to say about it. Um, yeah? Uh, now, these kids who are counting, do they have conservation yet? Because if you spread out one set, they'll say that they're not equal. Yeah, um, and that's a reason that one-to-one -one correspondence is so important. That is, you show, look, for this, there's this. For this, there's this. It's sharing also. You know, one reason that people are taught to share in, or one result of people being taught to share when they're four years old is that they learn to count. The very idea, or they learn one-to-one -one correspondence. One for you and one for me. One for you and one for me. One for you and one for me. And notice they're not saying, let's count how many M&Ms we have. Oh, we have 60. You take 30 and I'll take 30. One-to-one -one correspondence is one for you and one for me. One for you and one for me. The other yeah. day, it's like I saw um, uh, a YouTube video of experimenters sort of testing with kids. Like, they had the pennies. And at first, when they were, they looked like the same length. She actually counted them out and said they were the same. But then they spread them out and said, well, this one has more. Yeah. And yeah, and kids, kids also like drinks in taller glasses for that reason. Because yeah. there's another idea of more that they have. There was a, a graham cracker thing where she, uh, the experimenter gave the kid one graham cracker square and herself two, and she asked if it was fair, and the kid said no. And then she broke the kids in half, so it was two rectangles, yeah. and that made it fair. One-to-one -one correspondence. That's exactly right. Say it again so everyone can hear you. Uh, she broke the kid's graham cracker into the two rectangles, and that made it fair. So the teacher gets two big graham crackers, the kid gets one. The kid says that's unfair. The teacher breaks the kids into two, and now the kid says it's fair. Why? Because now they're in one-to-one -one correspondence. For each big graham cracker the teacher has, the kid has a half a graham cracker. They're in one-to-one -one correspondence. So that's the basic idea. That's what we have is one-to-one -one correspondence. Now we look at infinite sets, and we say we can't count how many elements in an infinite set. You can't do it. By definition, you can't do it. So how can we talk about whether infinite sets are the same size? Now, it would be a real pain to talk about infinite sets if you couldn't get some generality into them. That is to say, it would be a real pain to talk about infinite sets if you said, well, they're the set of natural numbers, and that is a pretty good baseline for infinity, 0 to infinity. 
But what about the set of even numbers? Well, that must be a smaller infinity. And then what about the set of numbers divisible by 10? That must be a smaller infinity still. What about the set of numbers divisible by 100 trillion? That must be a really kind of tiny infinity. And what about the set of numbers divisible by Googleplex? Ah, I could hold that infinity in the palm of my hand. Um, if you try to do that, the concept of infinity would be completely useless. It would be something that you could um, countenance if you liked, but it would be useless. However, we have this idea of one-to-one -one correspondence. And with one-to-one -one correspondence, what we say is an in two sets with an infinite number of members are the same size if they can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with each other. And what it means to put two things into one-to-one -one correspondence is to pair them. That's all you have to do is pair them so one is always paired with another according to a rule. So if I say 50, you say 25. If I say 13, you say, 20, you say 26. As long as you know which set we're in, every person who knows the rule can say what element in the other set will correspond to the first one. So any rule which puts them into one-to-one -one correspondence, if there is such a rule, and there are no exceptions, and you can be sure that anyone who understands the rule and has access to the sets will be able to put them into one-to-one -one correspondence, then you say the sets are the same size. Remember, that's a, the idea that they're the same size is a less basic idea than the idea that they can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence. It's a more convenient idea for us to, to use, but it's just an abbreviation for and an intuition of what it means for sets to be in one-to-one -one correspondence. So that's why the number of even numbers, we can use this terminology now, is the same as the number of whole numbers, because they can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence. That's why the number of rational numbers between 0 and 1 is the same as the number of whole numbers. Do people remember how that worked? Remember, it's the triangle marching down the board. So I'm going to keep this up because I want to talk about those dot, dot, dots, I think. So we go 0, then 1 half, then 1 third, 2 thirds, then 1 fourth, 2 fourths, 3 fourths, etc. Um, this is one way of doing it. It doesn't matter which way you pick as long as you're consistent. And what we do is we get rid of every repetition. You know, the um, Kant actually makes this joke, th this riddle. How many letters in the word letter? Anyone know? No. One letter in the word letter? Four. Four. What are they? L-E-T-R. Those are the four letters in the word letter. There are six characters, but only four letters. How many letters in the Gettysburg Address? Well, if it's a pangrammatical window, which I'm sure it isn't, 26. 
How many letters in Moby Dick? 26 letters. This is another version of the Library of Babel. Um, there are only 26 letters. So how many letters can there be in any book in English? No more than 26. In lipograms, where Sam, in lipogrammatical books, um, you'll only have 25 letters in the book. Remember, um, I think I mentioned it in this class, we talked about the book Avoid, or La Displacion, the book without the letter E. So that book only has 25 letters in it, not 26. Simple. What could be simpler? 25-letter book. Ooh. Um, okay, so same way, we say we already had one half, so that numeral we don't repeat. Even though we put it differently as two-fourths, it's the same thing as one half. So we get rid of a numeral that's the same number. So by doing this, we can say zero, is, it, zero corresponds with one, one-half corresponds with two, one-third corresponds with three, two-thirds corresponds with four, one-fourth corresponds with five, three-fourths corresponds with Six, one fifth, one sixth. Oh no, I don't want one sixth. I want two fifths. I'm glad you stopped me. Two fifths, eight, etc. Okay, so if I say eight, you say two fifths. If I say two fifths, you say eight. One to one correspondence. So in the Hilbert Hotel, we have an even easier one to one correspondence, which is. What we say is the rooms before you arrive are rooms number one, two, three, four, five. After you arrive, everyone takes a step down the hallway to the next room. So the person in room one will now be in room two. Person in two will be in three, etc. So the person in room 100 will move to room and the person who is now in room 1002 was in room 1001. You can go back and forth. It's one-to-one -one correspondence. And now a room opens up for you. There's always room for one more in the Hilbert Hotel. That's the point. Is there a room zero in that hotel? It depends, it depends whether you want it. It's like um, if you go to France and the ground floor is zero in the elevator. Doesn't that drive some people crazy? You know, the first floor in Europe is what we call the second floor, etc. I believe the French also do a weird floor numbering thing whereby, whereby, at least in some places, the top floor is number one. Oh, really? Yeah. <coughs> that may be a linguistic thing, they still use the numerals the same way, but I seem to recall there being ways of talking about floors. Yeah. Like that. Huh. Elevators have the letter B instead of a negative sign. Wait, say that again? How come elevators have the letter B instead of the Oh, some have, negative, some have negative signs. For if, they, if there are lots of sub-basements, they'll have negative signs. Okay, so then, going back to what Luca was saying, what we know now then is that there's one-to-one -one correspondence between all the digits in 10N and all the digits in N. And because there's one-to-one -one correspondence, and because each digit corresponds in one set to 10 times that digit in the other set. And because we shifted them over, we can do the subtraction. Yeah. I mean, what I was thinking was, it's 
like what you were talking about before, where um, the, the reason you can't say, uh, you know, this infinity is two times this infinity. I mean, there are some infinities larger than others, but um, it's the same reason you can't say, uh, you know, the infinity of even numbers is half the infinity of uh, whole numbers because less ridiculous. You can't just be like, oh, infinity divided by two. Well, infinity divided by two is still two. Yeah. Um, and so... No, it's not. It's still infinity. Sorry, that's what I meant. But, uh, yes. Why would it still be two? Infinity is also four. Whatever. <laughs> um, close enough. Infinity turned 106 this year. Go on. Um, and so that's... I don't know. That's the problem I have with the algebraic solution to that problem. I agree that 0.9 repeating equals 1. I just think that algebraically, you're multiplying it by 10, but you're multiplying something that is infinite by 10. Yeah. No, you're multiplying an expression that's infinitely long. But can't you do that with 0.33333? You're multi it's just multiplying one third. Right. I mean, I, I also think that's kind of made up. Why? It's on, that's only an artifact of, of how you're putting... Look, the point about decimal numbers is they can't, you can't put something into base 10 that doesn't go on forever, but that's an artifact of the base you're using, not of the number. But I mean, you can say, you know, uh, one-third point three repeating ever, you know, forever. If you multiply that by three, you're not going to get one, you're going to get, get point nine repeating. Forever. That's another proof. Right that point 0.9 equals 1. Look, why is that proof no good? What you say is, everyone knows why 1 third is 0.3333? Does everyone know that? No, you just believe it? Um, the reason is if you, let's do a little division problem. We will say 1 third, another way of putting that is to say 3 into 1. 3 into 1 goes how many times? Zero. Zero! So now what we have to do is put a decimal point here and turn this 1 into a 10. 3 into 10? Three. 3. 3 times 3? Oh, 9. Good! <laughs> Difference? One. One. 1. What do we bring down? 0. 0. 3 into 10. <gasps> it's the same thing! <gasps> Look at that! <laughs> and, oh my god, it's going to be the same thing forever! Help! <laughs> But all that tells us is a well-defined number like one-third put into decimals is going to require you to just put threes down forever. It's not that one-third isn't well-defined. It means you just have to put three downs forever. Now let's multiply a third by three. What's three times one-third? Anyone? Quick. One. One. Okay. The okay. decimal representation of one-third is 0.333 forever. Multiply that by three. 0.9999 forever. So if 0.3333 forever is one third, and three times the third is one, then three times 0.333 forever is also going to be one. But it's also 0.9999 forever. So 0.999 forever equals one. Okay? You're still not buying it, but. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're now we get to an interesting issue, though which is you're doing a calculation or you see a number or you're being given a number 
And that number is 3.142857, 142857. And you get 142857s a million times in a row. How confident can you be that you are now dealing with 22 sevenths? You can be confident that you're very close to 22 sevenths. But how confident can you be when you see a repeating pattern like this, that this actually is 22 sevenths? Just a guess. You guys all read Pascal. You think he was too confident that God existed? 50-50 chance? Really? So what do you think the chances are that if, that if you come upon a number in Lost, you're on the island in Lost, and instead of Hurley's number, you come upon a number which is 3.142857142857142857142857, but then it goes into the forest and the smoke monster takes it, and um, the others are, are somehow handle the, where the number goes, and you don't see where it's going, and it's all. But you've gotten to see a thousand repetitions of 142857 before it disappears. How confident can you be, roughly speaking? that we're dealing with 22 sevenths. Give me just baseline number. 99%. Zero percent. Well, we have, we have a difference of opinion here. Um, yeah? Um, I think it wouldn't really matter how sure you are, because it's close enough that it wouldn't really have any It matters to God. It may, it, it may be close, it may be close enough, but, but we're asking a true false question, not a close enough question. So how confident can you be that it really is 22 sevenths and not arbitrarily close to 22 sevenths? So, anyone else? Zero. This sounds really reminiscent of, of the you just turn on the TV yeah. problem. And, um, so I'm trying to figure out how to fit it into that framework. Okay, anyone else on percentages? Who would bet that it was 22 sevenths? <laughs> how, much, how much of a bet are we talking? And who am I betting against? I don't know. You're betting for a sandwich. Oh, a sandwich. Which on the, on the lost island, that's probably important. It's a good sandwich. These are the things that matter. Okay. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Cage free eggs. Not vegan, but cage free eggs. Okay. Who wants to know? So. So how many people think the percentage is eh, 50-50? No one's raising their hand for that. Um, how many people think the percentage is kind of small? How many, even after 1,000 repetitions, how many people think the percentage is kind of large? So just, you know, in a way we're back to the anthropic principle because remember one version of it, um, this is a version that Derek Parfit is pushing, is the odds against a universe that could um, contain intelligent life are um, several tens of trillions to one against such a universe. So the odds against finding a non-repeating number, you might think that to get to 1,000 or to 7,000 digits and seeing, see a pattern the whole way through, through 7,000 digits, you might think the odds against that not repeating would be very high, and yet you're all saying you actually think it's very low that it's a rational number, a repeating decimal. Except for you, George, you think it's very high. Okay. Um, those who said zero, why? Yeah. Well, because it has to repeat for infinity. 
Yeah. 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 Uh huh. So the the odds that this pattern continue should be extremely low because you shouldn't be looking at the number before that. Yeah. Okay. No, uh, it doesn't affect the next number, but it's just you can you can look at both them and then see if it's like it doesn't have any effect on what's going to come after necessarily. Well, let's let me let me ask it this way. Wait, I, so there are two there are two different questions here. One is if you don't know whether it's a rational or irrational number. And remember, you can any there between, it's certainly the case, um, for reasons that we'll get to but not today, that between any two, well, we actually have gotten to them a little bit. Between any two rationals, there's at least one irrational. It's, that's certainly the case. Um, in fact, between any two rationals, there are an infinite number of irrationals, but um, we don't have to talk about that now. But it's certainly the case that you can always get one irrational between any two rationals. Um, so we, the first problem is we don't know, because we don't know how the number keeps going, whether we're dealing with a rational or an irrational number. And because we don't know that, but because, as I'm about to tell you, but we'll, we'll prove this later on, there are infinitely more irrational numbers than rationals. That is that the number of irrationals is a higher order of infinity than the number of rationals. The number of irrationals between 0 and 1 is a higher order of infinity than the number of rationals, one-half, one-fourth, one-third, etc. If you have a repeating decimal, and I mean, you, if you have a decimal that goes on beyond where you can see, the odds are infinity to one that it's irrational, and therefore the odds that it's a repeating decimal will be zero. Yeah? And did you say that, like, the odds of choosing a whole number over an even number is a higher order? Just, no. It's not? No. But maybe I don't understand what a higher order is. No, you don't, but you will. <laughs> a higher order is that you can't put it into one-to-one -one correspondence. Oh. Um, you can put evens and holes into one-to-one -one correspondence. I know it's a weird thing, and there, there are all sorts of interesting puzzles about this, which is if you throw um, a dart at an infinitely large dartboard, um, aren't you more likely to hit a hole than an even number? Um, and this raises really hard problems about probability when you're talking about um, infinite possibilities. Um, but it doesn't raise. But that's where the give is: is in how to think about probability rather than in how to think about numbers. Um, yeah. Yeah, the power set will always get you to up to the next to at least the next order of infinity. Um, yeah, that's the point. That that's why you have Olive sub infinity is the last infinity. Except what kind of infinity is Olive sub infinity? Is it Olive sub Olive sub zero? Well, no. Is it Olive sub Olive sub infinity? Yeah, but what order, etc. 
So it's like the Graham's number version, the, gram, the cracked Graham's number, that way we get Graham crackers into it, version of, um, of orders of infinity, of transfinite numbers. Um, we won't quite get there, um, but it's easy enough to show. It's not that easy to show, actually, after a certain, um, after a certain number of transfinite um, iterations, it gets a little bit harder to show, but yeah. So look, the point is, now let me ask the question this way. What if we know that it's a rational number? That is to say, someone says the number is 3.142857142857. We've looked and looked and looked. It's been repeated a thousand times. And we also know it's rational. Then what are the odds that we're looking at 22 sevenths? You, we know it's rational, so we know it's not going to be an irrational number that looks rational in the same way that pi and 22 sevenths are the same in the first three digits and only change in their fourth digit. What if we say this is not an irrational number that's the same as a, as a rational number for its first 7,000 digits, but this is a rational number pure and simple, and we have this number of repetitions. Greg? Number. Yeah. Because that does make it seem more likely, but there's still basically infinite chance that after such and such number of repetitions, it could throw in a number that breaks the pattern and then has to go through like the billion numbers we saw again to repeat it. Yeah. And it would still be rational, but it wouldn't be 22.7. Yeah. So even if we're talking about a rational number, we wouldn't know by inspecting the repetitions if we're given the number. The odds that it was 22 sevenths would still be zero because there are an infinite number of other possibilities. That is to say, it could be um, 2, 2, 2, 2, 2, 2, 2, 2, or just uh, thousands and thousands of twos over thousands and thousands of sevens, but with an eight thrown in after um, 60 million digits. And it could still be a rational number and it's decimal, if you figured out what it was decimally, it would look like 22 sevenths for the first 6,000 digits, but then it wouldn't anymore. And it would still repeat. Or maybe, it, you know, it could still be a repeating number, but you'd have the wrong pattern. One very famous question is, um, finish this pattern, 0, 1, 2, what comes next? 4. As Every school child knows 720 factorial. It's, you can look this up on the internet um, encyclopedia of integer sequences. There is such a thing, and it's really great. It's really after cool. that? After that, you don't want to know. Uh, 720 factorial, I think, is um, 1,400 digits long. Uh, you can actually find it. There is a website that will give you expansions of factorials up to a reasonable number. But yeah, 0, 1, 2, 720 factorial. Wait, why? <laughs> I always say that it's not 720 factorial, but more 720! Yeah. Yeah. Yelling. Yeah, but it's not. It's actually so much bigger than 720. Because, because it's a different... Because you thought I was just adding one. 
but I wasn't. Um, I leave this as an exercise to the reader. It's actually fun to figure out. And the 720 factorial is a huge clue, obviously. Um, but it's fun to figure out. Or look it up on the Internet Encyclopedia of Integer Sequences. Um, there are other ones that are, that are um, sweeter in the sense that you get what looks like a completely innocuous set of integers for a while, and then suddenly it just goes, Bleh! and you get something completely bizarre and strange. Um, but this one is just like 0, 1, 2. Where's the harm there? What could, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> 0, 1, I'm totally there. 2, man, I am on easy. 720 factorial, help! Um, what could possibly go wrong with 0, 1, 2? Okay, now there is in computer science something known as the halting problem. And the halting problem is um, how do you know that you, it's not quite how do you know that you have an answer because you could know that you have an answer. The question is under what conditions could you know that you should stop looking any farther for the answer? And um, that question is a really deep philosophical question in computer science. Um, it's, and that brings us now to Neuromancer and its relationship to Descartes. Um, so what we have in Neuro Neuromancer are entities called the Turing police. And we've already talked about the Turing test, and I want to say something about the Turing test. But um, So everyone knows Alan Turing, I will remind you, was one of the two or three greatest founders of computer science. He cracked, I will remind you, um, he was largely responsible for cracking Enigma, which was the German code in World War II that they communicated, um, especially with their submarines um, using Enigma. And um, Turing um, essentially built um, digital computers in order to crack the code. The code was extremely hard to crack, um, which turned out to be a very, very great advantage to the Allies because the Germans thought it was so hard to crack that it would never be cracked. Um, and they had utter confidence in its um, um, unbreakability. And so when the Allies broke it, they just didn't think that could be. Um, it was also the, one of the best kept secrets of the war, um, the fact that England had cracked Enigma. Um, because they wanted to be able to know what the Germans were doing, and if the Germans knew, that would have been trouble. So the result was that they only used it for extremely important information, um, because they didn't want to over-rely on it, because then the Germans would have been suspicious. Yeah, well, that turns out not to be true. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but that, that's the general... Complaint was that Churchill let Coventry be bombed um, in order not to let the Germans know that the English knew that they were about to bomb Coventry. Um, but that turns out actually just to, to be, to be um, a, a kind of chilling but untrue story. Um, so Turing basically came up with a model for how computers work. And we talked about this a little bit also. And what was so useful about this model was that with the idea of being able to write or erase a mark, 
being able to move a strip of paper and being able to raise or lower a flag, a button, um, a, you know, like a mailbox flag. Do you guys know about that? That when you have mail, that outgoing mail, you put the flag up on your mailbox and the letter carrier gets the mail. So that's, that's what a flag would be. That with those things, with setting up a flag, with writing or erasing, and with moving a strip of paper, and with very simple rules, you could do any calculation that the most complex digital computer could do. It would take you a long time. But you could do any calculation that a complex digital computer could do. And the reason you would want this incredibly simple model, as long as it was universal, what he called them were universal machines, as long as the model was universal, with that incredibly simple model, you could um, see what computers could do. You could prove things using that model or disprove things um, by saying if the model can do it, a computer can do it, and if the model can't do it, a computer can't. Um, Turing also, I think this was his PhD dissertation actually, um, came up with another really interesting concept called an oracle. And I think that in the matrix, the oracle, that's an allusion to Turing's oracle. So what an oracle is, is something, is a kind of black box that can know things that a Turing machine can't. Um, so, but a Turing machine can do anything that a computer can do. Now, Turing had very, very great um, confidence in what computers could do. And he predicted, wrongly as it turns out, but he predicted that in the year 2000, he said this in the late 40s or early 50s, that in the year 2000, if people were given an interesting test, which is to communicate with a terminal, they had terminals in the 50s, they were called teletypes, but to communicate with a terminal with another entity, that entity was attempting to convince the human that it was a human. That's what you wanted to do, was, was prove that you were a human. A human could not tell any better than chance whether it was communicating with a human or a computer. So basically the way you would do a Turing test is, and the way they do do Turing tests, they do them from time to time at MIT, is you would put, you get, get 100 volunteers, 100 human volunteers, and they would be put in a room in front of terminals. And... Um, they would be communicating 50 of them with other human beings and 50 of them with AIs, with artificial intelligence programs. And the AIs and the human beings, that is, those who are hidden, would each be trying to convince their partner with whom they are in what kind of correspondence? No, computer correspondence, email correspondence. The, nah, all right, one-to-one -one correspondence. They would be trying to convince their partner that they were human. So if you were one of the 50 humans communicating with those testing you, you would do your damnedest to prove you were human, partly because you would be doing it for the dignity of the human race. And it would be really bad if your partner thought you were a computer, if you're a human being. 
So you would be saying, I can convince my partner that I'm a human in a way that a computer could never do. But the AI is also trying to convince its partner that it's human. So there's a competition, you could say, among the 50 hidden humans versus the 50 hidden computers to see who can be more human than human, to quote Blade Runner. That's the Tyrell Corporation's motto, more human than human. That's our motto. And the 100 human testers would be trying to figure out whether they were interacting with a human or a computer. So Turing predicted that by 2000, you couldn't tell more than by chance whether your partner was a computer or a human being. And philosophically, what he thought this meant I'm not sure he actually said this, but this quickly became the philosophical issue, was that if you couldn't tell whether you were interacting with a machine or a mind, there was nothing more you could know about whether it had a mind or not. It did. That is to say, all we are are wetware. All we are are machines, cellular machines machines made of biochemistry. We have minds. Somehow minds arise, as Descartes showed, we have minds. Somehow minds arise out of some very complex configuration and interaction of matter. And we assume that our friends and loved ones have minds also although we don't have first-person experience of their minds, but we interact with them. They have minds. Really, they do. So if you're interacting with a computer that was so complex in its configurations and in its interactions, the fact that it wasn't biochemistry but simply electronic, that's trivial. What matters is it's got a mind. It doesn't want to be turned off. That's what the experiment is about. It's got theories about you, as in the experiment. It thinks you're God. Descartes didn't believe animals had minds. Anyone who has a dog, if you have a cat, you may believe that. But anyone who has a dog knows that they do. Um, but so what if you had a computer that loved you? The book Galatea 2.2 is about that. It's... Um, another version of this idea, so, so um, by Richard Powers, Galatea 2.2. Um, so Turing, or what people thought then was, that would mean that turning Descartes around, if you couldn't possibly tell whether you were dealing with something which, which thought, any more than you could tell about another human being, whether that person really thought. That is, you wouldn't have the answer to Cartesian skepticism, which is only I think, therefore I am. I don't know that anyone else is. Amming, I can am. But ising is something that we only see from the outside. Amming is only what a single person can do in their own mind. So ising, if you assume that others are, 
if you assume that she is, that your mother is, that your sister is, if you assume that, only on the basis of talking to them about life, about love, about all sorts of stuff. If a computer could talk to you with the same absolute conviction, wisdom, stupidity, hope, fear, etc., about all those things, if you couldn't tell whether you were Skyping with a computer or with your sister, then it would be real. That's the idea in, that seems to be the idea in Neuromancer. So Wintermute is as real as Case or as Molly. That's the idea. And what the Turing police in Neuromancer are about is stopping AIs from becoming fully real. The AIs, or at least Wintermute, wants to. But they're trying to stop it. There's an, so they have citizenship, for example. Limited citizenship. Limited Swiss citizenship. Um, trying to stop them from being fully real. Now, one of the questions that Descartes, and here's where to think again how Neuromancer is like Descartes. Descartes raises the question, why might I believe that the outside world exists falsely? And he posits a reason that you might falsely believe the outside world exists, which is what? You've been programmed to is one way to put it, yeah. Sorry? You're dreaming, but why are you being fooled into thinking? Because there's an evil demon, he says. What if an evil demon is programming me to or piping these dreams to me in order to fool me into thinking that the outside world exists? If you know Hamlet, Hamlet wonders whether the ghost of his father is such an evil demon. The spirit that I've seen may be a devil, he says. I don't know whether to believe him. So Descartes thinks there may be an evil demon piping these thoughts and these beliefs into me. And then he goes on, but the one thing I can be sure of is that even if someone is programming me or fooling me or making me believe things that are not true and causing me to hallucinate, it's me that this demon is doing it to, or as he calls it, that this evil genius is doing it to. There's still a me who's having the hallucinations, a me who's being programmed, a me who's made to believe these things. Now in, when you jack in, in cyberspace, in Neuromancer, what's happening is a data stream is being projected into your mind as though you're in real space and experiencing real time, but you're not. It's an arena ripe for evil demonhood. At the end of Neuromancer, I'll just say this, at the end of Neuromancer, Case's whole experience is controlled by what Wintermute has become. And all of that, it's an amazing section, and all of that is the projection, if not of an evil de demon, certainly of a genius which is what Wintermute is.
or what Wintermute has become, and now is. Certainly a genius. And Kate's experience is all of that. Now, we started last time to talk about the Dixie Flatline. And I want to leave you with a question which arises out of the Dixie Flatline. Case turns him on, and he never knows the time has passed. And he repeats himself. That's one of the things Kate says. He says, you know, you repeat yourself a lot. And he says, well, that's what happens if you're just a construct. Because the real Dixie is dead. So here's his construct. And Kate says, are you sentient? Do you have feelings? Do people remember this moment? He says, it feels like I am. He says, I don't know, but it sure feels like I am. So he says, it feels as though I feel something. Yeah. He also says, when this is over, I want you to destroy me. Now, do we think that he actually has feelings? That he, it does feel to him as though he has sentience? Or is that just his recorded personality following a program to say that? You know, if you ask Siri, do you guys talk to Siri the way John Malkovich does? A friend of mine talked about, was, we were talking about King Lear and started, came up with the idea of Leary. Um, <laughs> but I thought, actually, the fool is more like Siri than Lear himself is. Um, talk to Siri, and, you know, people fall in love with Siri. Um, people used to fall in love with Julie, who was the first person, um, the, the Amtrak voice, the Amtrak electronic voice. Um, people would write Julie love letters. But you know Julie's not real. It's kind of hard not to think of Siri as real if you have an iPhone 4S or an iPhone 5. You know that it. How many people think Siri's female? I mean, how many people respond to Siri as though it's female? And how many is male? The voice is supposed to be gender um, project. That is, it's supposed to be a, a kind of optical illusion or auditory illusion where it sounds like the gender you think Siri is, but most people tend to think of Siri as female if they gender Siri at all. Um, yeah, tr next time you hear Siri, try to hear it as male, and you'll be able to. But Siri, you know, if you say to, if you ask, if you, him, yeah. It, um, Siri won't tell you. If you say, what's your gender, Siri, Siri says, I would prefer not to say now. I would prefer not to say Dave. Um, that could be what, what the flat line is. One last point, though. When Case is jacked in and having really intense experiences, what do his friends see in the real world? Those who are monitoring him. Yeah, but what about his brain? Well, sometimes he goes brain dead. Yeah, he's flatlined. Now, if he's flatlined, how is he different from Finn? How is he different from the Dixie flatline? He, yeah, he thinks he's thinking. Or we think he's thinking. But you know what? He's just a character in a book. He's not real. So, of course he flatlines. He's not a mind. So what's your final question? Every character, every book is final. Yeah, that... Everything is false.
Yeah, everything is false. Yeah. I kind of interpreted that as if case is no longer inside of his inside of his brain. That the mind that is case is existing more so inside the matrix than it is. Yeah. yeah, but the question is, is he just a program? Does he have experience? It feels like he does. He'll say it feels like he does, but does he? Okay, one other interesting thing about Turing tests is there's something called a reverse Turing test, which is that humans and computers try, or excuse me, humans try to convince computers that they're computers. Um, and there's only one way to do it, which is to produce random numbers. And I mean, that's what your instruction is, produce some random numbers. And see if you can fool a computer into thinking that you're a computer, that you're, that you're able to randomize. And humans never pass that test. Humans cannot randomize well enough. Computers technically randomize either. No, but they randomize so much better than humans do. That computers can tell the difference between a computer and a human by looking at the numbers that are produced. So a reverse Turing test, we can't fool computers into thinking we're computers. All right. No, it's, I've been incredibly busy, but I'm going to try and look at it tonight.